wanted to uh, sort of bring you into a passage today, and I want to begin in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is approached and asked a question by the followers of John the Baptist. And so, John the Baptist has been preaching in and around uh, Judea, and he's been saying that the Messiah is coming. Prepare yourself. The Messiah is coming. And so, Jesus begins to minister in the same area, and John the Baptist hears about it. And he sends a couple of his followers to Jesus to ask this very simple question. Are you the guy? Are you the one? Are you the anointed one? And I want to read to you uh, from the Gospel of Luke where this question is asked. And I want, to read to, I want you to read with me Jesus' answer. And then we're going to go back to one of the passages in the Old Testament that Jesus was evoking when he gave this answer. And we're going to talk about what that means for us and for our lives as it relates to who Jesus is. So we're going to begin in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read a few more verses than what you have printed in your bulletin just for the sake of space. I had to clip a couple things out of there. But I'm going to begin in verse 20 and take us through verse 23 of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 7. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Almost everything Jesus ever said in his teaching evoked some portion of the Old Testament, either in a general sense or in a very specific sense. He was either quoting or referencing something in the Bible almost every time he spoke. And here also, Jesus gives this almost cryptic answer to the followers of John the Baptist that evokes a passage that every Jewish person of the time would have been abundantly familiar with. Um, I want to sort of take you into a word before we read through Isaiah chapter 35. And I, want you to just, I want to just ask you the, this question. What in your life has overtaken you? At one time or another, not necessarily right now, but what in your life has overtaken you? Um, the Jewish people at the time that Isaiah 
rights, um, were divided into two nations. And, and one of those nations, the neighbor nation of Isaiah's nation, um, had been overtaken by the king of Assyria. And now Isaiah's little postage stamp of a country called Judah, was one of the tribes of Israel, is about to be overtaken by the king of Assyria. And there's a, a virtual panic that is spreading throughout uh, the Jewish nation at this time. After Isaiah says these words, God afflicts the army of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, with some kind of plague. And so many of their military personnel die that the king withdraws his army and they do not attack and overcome. But that was only a brief respite for that little country of Judah would be overcome later by the king of Babylon. And Israel was seemingly gone, wiped off the face of the earth. And of course, you probably know most of the story. Um, some Jewish leaders eventually return. They rebuild, they begin to rebuild Jerusalem. They rebuild a, a temple of sorts. And they, they reinstate the worship of Yahweh in that place against all odds. No one would have calculated that was possible at the time after the Babylonians took over Israel. But then the Jewish people are overtaken again. They're overcome by the Roman army. And they're occupied by a fairly brutal and efficient machine of a regime. And in this state, they hearken back to these words of Isaiah for hope. But at this time, when Jesus says these words, when Jesus is ministering in the midst of the life of Israel, they are most certainly living in a time of desolation and as if they are in the desert again. And so Jesus hearkens to these words when he's asked that question by the follower of John the Baptist from Isaiah chapter 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance and with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. 
Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrows and sighing will flee away. think of the things in my life that from time to time have overtaken me. I don't know about you, but the majority of those things that would fit that description for me are not happy thoughts. There are a few. Um, But more than likely, When you think about being overtaken by something, it is some aspect of life that bears pain or doubt or fear or sorrow. And God speaks directly into this human reality in this portion of his word. And in fact, Jesus comes at just the right point in Jewish history where everyone is aching for relief. They've been under oppression for, oh, I don't know, 600 years to one extent or another. And everybody wants out from under the weight of occupation. Um, And so, in the life of Israel, these poems from the prophets would have played prominently in their worship services, in their times together as God's people. They would have read words like these and prayed for God to come and deliver them. I want to just sort of use this as a template for how we posture ourselves in relation to God when we are in times that are, uh, well, where we are overtaken. The first thing that jumps out to me as I engage this passage from Isaiah is the call to wait. To wait upon the Lord's timing. There's no question that God's timing for his people is not the same as what they wanted. Um, And I'll just sort of, well, we'll stick with the timing for now. We're to wait on God's timing in the midst of our anguish. I think it is tempting to pray for escape, for relief, to be unburdened. But God seems to be saying, wait, sit down and wait. 
stop all the frantic doing and wait. None of us, I don't, I don't think, are naturally inclined toward things like patience, especially when it relates to God's timing. And so God weaves into his word this call to wait. That when we're in the desert, when we're in times of affliction and despair, we're not to be a people who who frantically do, but rather a people who learn to wait. And in that waiting, God tells us to know that there is hope. Uh, when Kathy and I were first married, we lived in, in St. Louis. And uh, it was time uh, to buy our first home. And uh, I, was in, I was in seminary at the time. And so, we, you know, we couldn't afford these, these you know, nicer houses. And we found this lovely uh, little house that was built in 1928, if I recall correctly. And it was very charming. So charming that it made you want to buy it. Um, and then, of course, you buy it and you move in and the thing is creaking and you think if the wind blows hard enough, it's just going to be a pile of splinters. Um, you could feel the wind actually blowing through the house if you sat in the right place in the living room. And uh, we were first... We bought it, I think, in October, November, December, somewhere like the December, maybe, right at the end of the year. And the people who owned the house prior to us, the, the wife was one of those obsessive gardeners, all right, which is great if you have the time and energy to devote to keeping the garden well. It's more jungle-esque uh, if you don't have that kind of time, attention, and talent. So, winter came, the snow covered the ground, and, uh, you know, we didn't think anything about this garden until, well, February or so. And there's a couple inches of snow that's kind of at that phase where it's melted and then refrozen, and it's kind of crunchy. And uh, I'm out in the backyard one day, uh, you know, with the dog, and there's a flower poking up through the snow. I'm like, what on earth is that? I'm from Texas. We don't do snow here, um, at least not in this part of Texas. And uh, I had no idea what this thing was. But it was, it was the first beacon of spring was a flower known as a crocus. And over the next week or so, literally dozens of these little things would pop up through the snow, then through the mud, and bloom almost immediately. It was beautiful. It was wonderful, actually, because uh, we didn't know they were there. Um, they didn't work so well the next year. I'm not sure what you're supposed to do to make hope come back, but, uh, you know... Beautiful surprise. In the middle of winter, or what you think is the middle of winter, there's this sign 
of spring, a sign of hope. And Isaiah evokes that image to God's people when he, when he talks of this waiting. That in the midst of the waiting, God will always bring you a sign of hope. That spring is coming after winter. That there is hope and that there is a God. Someone in charge. Someone who's keeping account of the world. Um, you hear Isaiah in this passage, and this may have been uh, brought a couple of questions to mind, but in verse 4, it says, Your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution he will come to save you. And I don't think that most of us think of God coming with vengeance as a good thing. But if you as a people have been suffering under the yoke of injustice for centuries, this idea is a good one. That there is a God who is keeping account and who will come and make the world right. And I dare say that this is one of the verses that caused so much confusion about Jesus. Because doesn't it suggest that the Messiah will come uh, with a sword and that he will vanquish the, oppressor, the oppressors and liberate God's people, I don't know, politically, militarily, this, this vengeance of God riding in to save the day. And so many in the time of Jesus were expecting not a humble servant as Messiah, but a general who would lead them to freedom from oppression, militarily, politically, and holistically. And Jesus, of course, did no such thing at that point in history. And so, it's not surprising that John's followers are puzzled. And they send word to Jesus. Are you him? Because we... I don't know that that's what we were expecting. You look kind of skinny. We were thinking Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. What's going on? Are you really the guy? And Jesus points back to this passage to say, yes, I am. Not exactly the way you think it will come, but yes, I am. We're to know in the midst of our anguish that there is hope and that there is a God. And in the midst of our fears, we are to know that there is strength and salvation. As I think about the word fear, I think this is a, a common, to not just to all of us, but to all of humanity throughout time, that we are by nature riddled with fear and God speaks through his prophet to say I know you're afraid I know that but I've got this I've got it back up a little I don't know what that's from um, and in this voice God says in the midst of your fears know that I bring strength and salvation if God promises, 
He will deliver. But we are to wait on his timing when we are overcome. So also we are to marvel at his working. God essentially says through Isaiah that he's on a mission to bring wholeness. That desire that all of us have to be whole, to be complete, to not be lacking or wounded. And God says in Isaiah that he will heal the sick, give sight to the blind, and hearing to the deaf. Um, I've told some of you this in the past. My, when I was a child, my mother was very involved in a, in a charitable organization that assisted the blind. It was called the Lighthouse for the Blind in Houston. And part of life in Ann Masterson's house were regular trips down to the lighthouse where she didn't really care if you wanted to be there or not. It was a given. You were going to be there. And this forced one into the awkward position of interacting with people that made you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And if you were honest, made you feel a little bit guilty about having all of your faculties about you. Probably the greatest lesson that came to me through that whole experience was people who are deprived of a faculty, hearing, sight, what have you, that does not limit their ability spiritually to be whole. I might even argue that they have a better chance of coming to their spiritual senses than most of us do because they're not quite so independently or fiercely independent in their view on life. And there, in those times that I didn't want to be there, I met some of the most incredible and spiritually grounded people I've ever known in my life. Um, God is on a mission to bring wholeness to our lives, health in a spiritual sense. It pertains to our ability to perceive. You see him evoking these images of the, the deaf and the blind, the ability to perceive, and our ability to act. God is in the business of transforming us into a whole people. Uh, Jesus spoke often about those who are spiritually blind and deaf and about the, the need for God to open eyes and open ears to give us new hearts and new abilities to perceive who he is and what he is doing. But that comes along with these renewed capacities to act on his behalf. And God evokes in his promise of the Messiah this wholeness of action that his word is coming to bring everything about. And he brings this wholeness and he brings life. He waters your soul and he grows your soul.
these images of life in the desert, in a parched land, and a God who will completely transform that which once was a barren wasteland into a thriving, growing, vibrant, green wetland. Um, This, Jesus is saying, as he answers the question, is how God works. He goes for the whole thing. Um, I think about, in my own life, how far short I sell my God. I'm, you know, in those times where I'm in the wilderness, what do I pray for? Relief. Uh, an out. <laughs> Escape. And God says, open your eyes. Because I'm here to bring everything. Not just, I'm not a bottle of Tylenol. I'm the God of life. And, and wholeness and freedom. Who will water and grow your soul. And so as we wait on his timing, we also are to marvel at his working. And we are called to rejoice in his goodness. To know that this God whom we serve has made a way for us to find this wholeness, forgiveness, and salvation that he has promised. We are to be a people of that way. You know, a couple of interesting things as Isaiah talks about this, this highway that, that God is forming to bring his people home to his heart. Um, Isaiah develops this idea throughout the remainder of the book. He comes back to it a couple of different times. And he speaks of, of the high places being made low and the low places being built up so that there is level ground on the approach to the work of the Messiah, on the approach to the cross. That through his work, that which has obstructed you and that which has obstructed me from a deeper and more full relationship with our Creator and Redeemer has been dealt with. It has been smoothed and made passable for your soul. That whatever it was that most drove a wedge between you and your Creator has been dealt with on the cross. And we may rejoice in that freedom to walk in His holiness and to walk in His safety you remember Isaiah hearkening to the fears of, of being human earlier in this, in this passage. And here he says, the way that the Messiah will make for you to return to God is safe. There's no traps. There's no robbers. There's no wild beasts to tear your flesh. It is safe. Come, for I have made the way to walk in His holiness and in His safety. And not only has He made the way, 
But Isaiah tells us that he has paid the way. Um, how does he, what does he call us? The redeemed. That is, those purchased at a price. That we are those who have been ransomed, verse 10. And those who are redeemed and ransomed are the very ones whom God is drawing back to himself. For the dissipation of sorrow, as he concludes in the concluding verse of this chapter, and for the restoration of joy. And I think about this idea of being overtaken. And everything that we might fear by which we could be overtaken. And God says, at the end, when I draw you back to myself, you will be overtaken with gladness and with joy. I can't think of a more stark contrast between what we humanly, natively fear and dread and what God promises to the hearts of his children. That he will bring you back and that you will be overcome not with fear, but with gladness and joy. Will you pray with me? God our Father, we confess that we are so easily overcome with the burdens of life. And Lord, that in our, our fears and our sorrows, we so often define ourselves. And Lord, you have sent your Son to lift our heads, to remind us that we are forgiven and redeemed at the price of his blood. And to show us, Lord, that we are indeed the fellowship of the overcome. But those who are overcome ultimately with gladness and joy. We pray, Lord, that you would define who we are and how we live as those who are overcome by your salvation by your grace, your forgiveness, and ultimately your joy. We thank you for your promises, even in the midst of the desert times in our lives. You lift our heads and show us who you are and what you have for us. For this we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.